I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is our second week in this chapter. Last week we began with what I thought might be the 800-pound gorilla in the chapter, um, especially for American readers in 2024. And that was the command that we'll read in just a moment. The command for King Saul to kill an entire people, an entire tribe named the Amalekites. And I spent the entire sermon last week looking at that command. uh, Specifically looking at the comfort the church has in the vengeance of the Lord. And so if you weren't with us last week, I'm, I'm not going to be talking about the Amalekites today. Uh, talked about that last week. It's recorded. It is on the website. If you have any interest, you can listen to it free of charge. And if you have any questions, like who were the Amalekites? Or why is the Lord's comfort, why is the Lord's vengeance a comfort to believers? You can hopefully find those answered in last week's sermon. So I'm not getting into the Amalekites today. We're going to do something different. There's something else that jumps out at us when we read this chapter. Something maybe less troubling, uh, but probably just as confusing, and that's the Lord's regretting that he made Saul king of Israel. And as we read this chapter, you'll notice right off a seeming contradiction We'd have plenty to talk about if all the author told us was the Lord regretted making Saul king. We'd have to ask, how does an unchangeable, all-knowing, all-wise God regret doing something? Did he not know? Did he make a mistake and overestimate Saul's leadership ability? Well, the author of 1 Samuel doesn't allow us to simply have that conversation Because he will additionally say, later in the chapter, God will not have regret. Seems like a paradox. Seems like a puzzle whose pieces just won't fit. Because in verse 11, we're told, the Lord says to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king. And then in verse 29, Samuel says to King Saul, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not man that he should have regret. And then if you look to the very last words in chapter 15, you see again the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, if you remember back to last week when we were talking about the Amalekites, Before I read the passage, I stated that when it comes to confusing and hard texts, we can't just throw them out or ignore them. Instead, we must humble ourselves before the Lord and seek His help, and that is certainly no different this week. But there's something else I'll add this week. We must not become those who refuse to believe something that we can't understand. You know, at at, at the beginning of the week, I thought I might go into open theism, uh, which is a 
a heretical belief uh, that says that God does not know the future. He has no idea what's going to happen. He can react quickly, but he, he doesn't know. The future is open. Now, I was going to go into that, and you'll probably be glad that that was deleted from my manuscript. But I was flipping through seminary notes and looking at open theism, and I, I found this, and I, oh, this was just a gem of advice that I found flipping through my notes. Uh, one of my professors was lecturing on the Arian controversy that took place in the early 300s. There was a man named Arius teaching in the early church that Jesus Christ was not truly God. Arius taught that Christ was the first of all created beings. He was the greatest of all created beings. He was, he was the highest of all created beings. But he was a created being. And therefore, not God. That's what Arius was teaching. And this led to a huge controversy within the church. They had to hash this out. And the fruits of that controversy... Uh, One of those fruits is the Nicene Creed, one of the creeds we affirm every other week in worship. But in this seminary lecture, my professor is talking about the Arian controversy, and I think he really put his finger on one of the root issues that plagued Arius and his followers. And it was their unwillingness or their inability to believe that which they could not understand. They'd say, maybe subconsciously, I cannot understand how the eternal and infinite maker of the heavens and the earth could take on human flesh. So it must not be true. You know, as believers, we can't adopt that Aryan way of knowing. We can't adopt that way that says, I will only believe that which I can make sense of. There's two quick reasons. Number one, we can't say that. We can't say, I will only believe that which I can make sense of because guess who that makes the judge? You. It makes finite, fallible human reason the standard of what's true instead of making the word of the all-wise, all-holy God the standard of what's true. It's really hubris. Beyond measure to say, my understanding is the standard, the measuring rod for what is right or wrong, true or false. We've got to leave that to the Lord. Second quick thing before we read our text. Remember what the Bible is. Remember what it is. The infinite and incomprehensible creator has condescended to reveal himself to his finite creatures of dust. Of course there's going to be mystery. Of course there's going to be things we don't understand. I mean, thinking about myself, the eternal one has revealed himself in the scriptures to a 37-year-old from Mississippi. The omniscient, all-knowing one has revealed himself in the scriptures to a guy who made a 22 on his ACT, on his third attempt. Of course there's going to be mystery. 
In the Scriptures, God speaks to us about Himself. And while I'm convinced that everything we must know for salvation in Christ is clear, when we're discussing the divine mind of God, we need to be very humble, remembering who we are and who He is. How does the hymn say it? Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. We'd be wise to remember those words as we approach our text. Let's pray and then we'll read it together. Almighty God, would you bless this reading and preaching of your word? Would you bless your people? that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. For Samuel 15, I'll read the entirety of the chapter. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telim, 200,000 men on foot, And 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned And passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, 
speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted to destruction. I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie Or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. All right. Again, if you're interested in the Amalekites, you can find that on our website. Uh, We're going to be looking at the Lord's regret, and I think the best thing to do is just to follow the text. 
Samuel comes to King Saul and gives him instructions straight from the Lord. Verse 18 calls it a mission. The Lord has a mission for Saul to go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, to fight against them until they're consumed. And Saul carries this out mostly. But he ultimately fails, doesn't he? Because he spares the king of the Amalekites, a man named Agag. He probably brought him back to his hometown to kind of serve as a living trophy. Look what I've done. I own their king. And he also spares the best of the livestock. And the Lord's aware of this. Because another word comes to Samuel. It's the subject of this sermon. We see in verse 11, I regret, the Lord says, that I have made Saul king. Now the Hebrew verb that my English Standard Version translates as regret is not rare at all in the Old Testament. It's not rare at all when it is used with God as the subject. I think I read that when speaking of the Lord himself, this word is used some 29 times. Here's a few examples you'll probably be familiar with. In Genesis 6, just prior to the flood and prior to Noah's ark, the Lord sees the wickedness that is pervasive on the face of the earth. And we're told that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. In the book of Jonah, Jonah 3, after the city of Nineveh, here's Jonah's preaching and repents. We read, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. Same word. He relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We see this word in Psalm 90 in a bit of a different use. The psalmist says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity. There's the word. Have pity on your servants. So as you can see, this Hebrew word has various uses. There's not just one simple meaning, which is going to make this interesting. Well, what's the first and most common explanation that pastors and theologians usually run to when they're explaining how an unchangeable and all-knowing God can say to change his mind or regret something? Well, they throw out a big word. They throw out a big word. They say, well, what we have here is an anthropomorphism. Right? An an anthropomorphism. You all know what an anthropomorphism is? You're all familiar with it, I promise. You've seen it. It is a literary device where human characteristics are used for God to help us understand what he is like. I've got some examples for you. Well, Del Ralph Davis defines it saying that it's when the Bible stoops to use human categories to tell the truth about a God who is far beyond our categories. How do you describe a God beyond our categories? Well, he uses things we're familiar with. In Genesis, we read that God walked in the garden. Does God have legs? No, God is a spirit. In Exodus, the Lord stretched out his hand against Egypt. 
God's hand was mentioned in today's reading in Psalm 39. Does God have hands? No, God is a spirit. And the ironic blessing in number six, words that we're pretty familiar with. We read, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Does God have a face? No, again, God is a spirit. You see what he's doing? He's revealing himself with words and characteristics we're familiar with. He is accommodating the limits of our understanding. Elsewhere, is it, is it on the front of our bulletin? Is it, is it here? Ah, rock and fortress. Is God a literal lifeless boulder? Is he a castle on a strong hill surrounded by tall walls? No. He's simply communicating that he is a safe and immovable refuge for his people. And as children of dust, we are unable to comprehend what our Creator is like. So in His kindness, He describes Himself in ways that are simple enough for children to grasp. So this is where the pastor or theologian runs quickly when they come to instances like the Lord regretted that He'd made Saul king. And there's nothing untrue or wrong about pointing that out. Of course it's true. But there can be a problem when someone like myself comes to verse 11 and says, oh, don't worry. It's just an anthropomorphism. That's all, that's all this is. Let's, let's keep going. Let's move on. And that would be a mistake because I would be keeping from you the full weight of the text. I would be dismissing the fact that the Lord really did feel sorrow and regret about making Saul king. He was greatly bothered by Saul's sin. He is not some cold, detached, emotionless spirit that we just anthropomorphize. He's not like the Force in Star Wars. Think of that movie. Some of you are familiar with the Force. Remember Luke Skywalker is told about the Force. It's what gives the Jedi his power. It surrounds us and is in us and binds the galaxy together. Luke has to learn how to use the Force. He has to learn how to harness its power. But you know the Force, besides being fictional, was impersonal and amoral. It could be used by both bad guys and good guys. The force did not have feelings. Our God is not like that. Our God is not impersonal. He is not amoral. He is a personal spirit. He he is a person, we, we could rightly say, who delights in obedience and grieves over sin. Dale Ralph Davis brought up anthropomorphisms in his commentary, and uh, he makes, I've got a lengthy quote here I hope will be helpful to you. He says that it's all right to point them out, but there's a danger that we will dismiss the matter and not go back to the text. We so focus on the form in which the truth comes that we neglect the truth that comes. Then Dr. Davis refers to the flood, or prior to the flood in Genesis 6. 
He says, did we really hear the parallel clause in Genesis 6, 6? And his heart was filled with pain? Did we sense the intensity of divine sorrow over human sin? Back to 1 Samuel. And ought not verse 11 of the present chapter move us beyond the problem of anthropomorphisms? The Lord says, I am sorry that I made Saul king because he was turned back from following me. It is a tragedy when Saul refuses to be the Lord's disciple. It grieves the Lord. He is not a you win some, you lose some God. Nonchalance is never listed as an attribute of the true God. Verse 11 does not intend to suggest the Lord's fickleness of purpose, but his sorrow over sin. It does not depict the Lord flustered over lack of foresight, but him grieved over lack of obedience. He continues, Samuel was not the only one who mourned. The form, the Lord regretting, in which the text communicates this truth is a bold one. And it was probably meant to be so, to get our attention. We need to know that the God of the Bible is no cold slab of concrete impervious to our carefully defended apostasies. End quote. I hope that's helpful. I hope that helps you to see the Lord isn't fickle, just changing his mind. I mean, we'll see that in just a moment in verse 29. He's communicating a bold truth that God is grieved. He is really grieved over Saul's disobedience. He regrets that he made Saul king because Saul has turned from following him. I mean, what does that mean to follow the Lord, to follow Christ? Well, it's pointing to a real living relationship between the Lord and you. And that relationship shapes how we live life day to day. And Saul has turned away from that. He's doing what he thinks is best. And it grieves the Lord. You know, we need to remember that our actions matter a lot to the Lord. Saul's actions mattered a lot to the Lord. And I think that in Samuel's reaction in verse 11, we see a picture of what the Lord is feeling. We're told Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. You see, he's not indifferent to this disobedience. He doesn't say, okay, well, that didn't work. On to David. No, he's, he's not indifferent when it comes to the disobedience of his people. You know, in a different context, the past two Wednesday nights, our group has discussed suffering and trials in the life of the believer. And in preparing for last week's lesson, I was reminded that the Lord Jesus just isn't some stoic. As Dr. Davis said, he's not a cold slab of concrete. He's not indifferent to the suffering of his people. I want to paraphrase something that I read from John Newton preparing for Wednesday night. He said something to the effect of, the most tender mother 
will sit uncaring and inattentive to the cries and needs of her infant child. She will do that sooner than the Lord Jesus become an unconcerned spectator of his people's suffering. He cares very much for his people's suffering. He is moved by your griefs. And there was something that Dr. Chuck Frost said at my installation service in August of 2018. It was a phrase that I heard him repeat in almost all his sermons. It's a phrase that can stick in the mind easily, and I hope it sticks in your mind. It's this. It's very simple. God can, and God cares. God can, and God cares. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. He can, but he also cares. The Lord Jesus is not indifferent or uncaring towards the suffering of his people, And our Heavenly Father is not nonchalant about our sin and obedience. You see, it's not that He makes a mistake and now regrets it. Our God makes no mistakes. It's not that He didn't know how things would end for Saul. He knew. Nothing escapes His knowledge. And yet He still felt genuine sorrow over Saul's turning away from him. He was grieved by it. Again, think of the Lord Jesus. He wept over the sin of Jerusalem. All the while knowing that the people of Jerusalem would reject him and hate him and free a murderer so that he might be crucified. He knew that was coming. And still he wept over Jerusalem. Our Lord wept with the family of Lazarus. He's weeping with these two sisters that he dearly loved for their dead brother that he dearly loved. And he's weeping with them all the while knowing that he would shortly call Lazarus to come out of the grave. He said, our God can and our God cares. Well, let's keep working our way through the narrative, try to understand this. Samuel goes to meet Saul in verse 12. Samuel confronts the king about his failure to carry out the command of God. Saul makes excuses. He blames his own people. He says, well, the animals were just spared to be offerings to the Lord. That's why we kept them. And we'll talk about that next week. Talk about the Lord delighting in obedience more than sacrifice. Saul then admits his sin. He begs for pardon. Samuel says no, goes to leave. Saul desperately grabs Samuel's robe and rips it, all the while pleading, like, do not leave me alone. And Samuel turns, and we read this in verse 28 and 29. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret 
for he is not a man that he should have regret. Well, there we go. The glory of Israel, God Almighty, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. What do we do with that? Well, again, I think context is so important. The Lord has spoken. Saul's kingdom will be taken from him. Just as he ripped Samuel's robes, Saul's kingdom will be ripped from him. And as you read through the latter half of this chapter, it is clear there is no going back. There's no changing this. This is no empty threat that the Lord is making to call Saul to straighten up and fly right. It's over. He's not playing any games. His loss of office is unchangeable. The Lord has made the decision that Saul is unfit to be king of his people, and there's no changing his mind. His tears, his pleas will not change God's mind. And dear Christian, there is comfort for your soul here, if you can recognize it. There's comfort just like there was in the Lord's vengeance against the Amalekites. God will not allow this man who ceased to follow him to shepherd his people. His people are the apple of his eye and they have a king who was not following the Lord and so he is removed. If you read straight through the Bible, if you start in Genesis 1 and make it all the way to 1 Samuel 15... You've already read these words in verse 29. Does anyone remember where they're spoken before? Back in Numbers 23. You don't have to turn there. Because the whole story is really two or two and a half chapters. So I'll, I'll just recap it. There's a man named Balak. He's a pagan king and he sees the children of Israel. This is after they've been brought out of Egypt. They're in the land in this pagan king sees them and he's scared of them. He thinks they're going to cause him trouble and overwhelm him. He, he could lose his kingdom to them. And so King Balak hires a pagan prophet named Balaam. Probably remember ba- Balaam and the donkey. Well, Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel. He says, I will give you all the silver in my house if you will curse this people. You remember what happens? Three times Balaam goes to speak. But the God of Israel would not allow this pagan seer to curse his precious people. He opens his mouth, but he's only allowed to bless them. And Balaam tells this to the king, and the king is outraged. But Balaam says, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? It's impossible. Well, why are you talking about this, John? Because later, Balaam will say to the king, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Same word. He has said, and will he not do it? 
He has spoken, will he not fulfill it? Behold, I receive a command to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. See, here's the comfort in Balaam's words. Our God is not powerless or fickle. He does not lie. If he said he's going to do something, he will do it. If he says bless, a pagan seer cannot curse. See, in both instances, with Balaam and with Saul, we see the Lord's unchangeable purpose in protecting and prospering his people. He has not forgotten his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will not allow this pagan prophet to curse his people. And he will not allow a sinful, disobedient king to continue to shepherd them. His eternal purpose will stand. And I think there is much comfort for us here, especially in verse 11 and in verse 35. Our God is so near, so involved in our affairs, so attentive to his people that he grieves when we sin and he is delighted when we obey. And then there's comfort in the other verse that says he does not regret Because he will do all that he says he will do. He will not lie. He will not vacillate from one thing to another. He is not like us. Almost done. After verse 29, Saul admits his sin. Samuel deals with the king of the Amalekites. The two of these men are then separated. They go their separate ways. We're told that Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, and Samuel grieved over Saul. And then there's that line. The Lord regretted that he'd made Saul king over Israel. We see those words repeated. They're repeated for a reason. They're repeated to make the reader long for a better king. One who would not grieve the Lord by his sin. And in the immediate context, you can just look at chapter 16 and see a familiar name there. David. He's coming. But we also know of the one greater than David who came. The Lord Jesus. Do you remember what the Lord said about his son at his baptism? He said, this is my well-beloved son. With whom I am well pleased. There was no regret. There was no grief. There was no sorrow over his sin because there was no sin. He never turned from following the Lord. He performed perfectly all his father's commandments. Even that most terrible and grievous one. To go to the cross and die for his precious favored people. To wash them with his blood and clothe them with his righteousness. And again, we see the Lord's eternal, unchangeable plan and purpose. It will never be removed. The Lord Jesus is the better king. We have a better king mentioned here in this text. He is the ultimate better king. And all who look to him will never be put to shame. So dear Christian... Look to the one who bore your griefs and carried your sorrows. 
Look to the one in whom God Almighty was well pleased. Unite your life to his, the king who is better than all the rest. Find your worth in his obedience. Follow the path that he has laid before you. Know that his is the way of salvation, the plan of God, unchangeably set in the mind of God, so that all who call upon him throughout all time will be saved, and no curse of any enemy, whether it's Balaam or Satan, will ever prosper against his saints. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do confess that uh, there, there are things in your word that are difficult for us. And Lord, I, I do pray for your people. I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight and, and help to know you rightly. Almighty God, may we be reminded this morning that you are the God who is near and who is, who is close and grieves over sin and delights over obedience. You are not distant or, uh, as Dr. Davis said, a cold slab of concrete. You are near, always. And Father God, you are also unchangeable. You are not like us. You are not fickle. You do not go back and forth. You have a plan That will stand for all time. And Lord, may we trust in the one who accomplished that plan, the Lord Jesus Christ. And ask this in his name. Amen.